Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 40th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. Still in the 60s. We've been in the 60s a lot. It's 1967. We were just in 1966 quite recently. So before we dive into today's episode, I've got got great news. It is great news. I managed to read most of two relevant books for this year. So we're going to have a little bit of like a literature discussion throughout this episode. We'll get to the reason why, but the two books I read, just for reference, are Peter Kramer's The New Hollywood, From Bonnie and Clyde to Star Wars. And I also read, this is the one I read most of, I read all of the Peter Kramer book, but the second one I read the first half of, and then the last quarter. (laughs) So... (laughs) Do that what you will. But the second book is Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution, which is specifically about the Best Picture nominees of 1967. So I was like, this is perfect. Yeah. Gotta do it. So yeah, there's some stuff that we'll talk about as we get into this episode, which I pulled from these books. But those are the citations. Excellent. So that's definitely going to help us. But to situate people in the year, we should talk about the events of 1967. Even though we've been talking a lot about the 60s, that doesn't mean there are any fewer events. <laughs> There's really a, so wild. a ton happening in this decade. So let us begin with some domestic events, mostly politics as they usually are. Mm-hmm. So the 25th Amendment passes this year to the Constitution. Yay, amendments. We should do more of them. I wish we would. I wish we would do more of them. But this one is about succession to the presidency. And in Supreme Court news, Loving versus Virginia passes this year about interracial marriage, which is also going to become quite relevant for this conversation. Yes, it struck down the anti-miscegenation laws that were, I think, in 17 states still, approximately. So keep that in mind. Do keep that in mind. Up next, Thurgood Marshall becomes the first Black justice on the Supreme Court. That's very exciting. And in similar news, Carl B. Stokes is elected mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, becoming the first African-American elected mayor of a major U.S. city. Also cool. In less good news, this is the long, hot summer of 1967, where there were 150 race riots across the country, probably the two biggest and most destructive being in Detroit and Newark, New Jersey. And because white hippies are always so with it, this is also the summer of love where 85,000 young people convene in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury neighborhood looking for utopia. Good luck. Good luck. And then usually when we bring up NASA, it's fun news. Yeah. This is a bad year for NASA news. One of the worst tragedies in the history of spaceflight occurred at the beginning of the year when the crew of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee were killed in a fire in the Apollo command module during a pre-flight test at Cape Canaveral. So sad. It's always sad to lose astronauts. Oh, NASA. In international slash domestic news, there's plenty going on with the Vietnam War. So there are tons of protests happening around the United States this year. Things are really ramping up to, you know, 1968, which will be the worst year of the war. Mm -hmm. 
So there's tons happening domestically in that conversation. And because of it, or as I guess part of that conversation, Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavy white title for refusing to join the United States Army. This was a fascinating piece of Vietnam news that I don't think I I didn't know about. I don't know if you did. So U.S. President Lyndon Johnson held a secret meeting with a group of the nation's most prestigious leaders, (laughs) the quote unquote wise men, and asked them to suggest ways to unite the American people behind the war effort. So they all got together, these wise men, and they were like, oh, how can we do this? And they Mm -hmm. came back to Johnson. They said, give more optimistic reports on the war. Genius. Nobody has ever thought of anything like this before. If only LBJ had known. Yes. It's very funny for me to think of what his reaction, knowing the temperament of Lyndon Johnson to this (laughs) just brilliant insight from the wise men. Pretty great. Okay. In actual international news, not affecting America as much, we have the six-day war between Israel and the Arab League this year, which um, leads in a couple of years to the Yom Kippur War a series of escalating tensions that we all know well. Mm -hmm. This is international news, but it still ended up applying to the U.S. The first successful human-to-human heart transplant was performed by Dr. Christian Barnard. Where did we say we decided he was from? South Africa. South Africa. Huge news. Very cool. And on more good news, British Parliament decriminalizes homosexuality and legalizes abortion this year. Crushing it, British Parliament. Way to go. Moving into entertainment news. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting is created. We love PBS. We do love it. Equally consequential, the first Super Bowl is held this year. So that's a giant part of American culture. Too true. The FCC orders that cigarette ads on television, radio, and in print must include a warning about the health risks of smoking. That's great news. Mm -hmm. A battle we're still fighting. Yeah. And then in less good news, Otis Redding died this year. In a plane crash, we did not realize he was only 26. Remarkable. Crazy. So sad. And then the final piece of entertainment news, maybe mostly for me, is uh, the British surreal spy drama The Prisoner premiered this year. Pretty visually influential, actually. And it's Very a, it's a great little show. show. A lot of people don't know about it, but it had a big effect on television, not just yeah. in England, but here too. So 1967. Busy year. Did people even find time to go to the movies? They sure did. (laughs) So yeah, we'll get to what was nominated this year with our normal quick overview in alphabetical order, as always. First up, Bonnie and Clyde, a drama about notorious outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde. It stars Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, and Estelle Parsons. It's directed by Arthur Penn, written by David Newman and Robert Benton. It was nominated for nine and it won two Best Supporting Actress, Estelle Parsons, and Best Cinematography. Next, we have Dr. Doolittle, a musical about a man who can talk to the animals. Just imagine it. I know. It stars Rex Harrison and Samantha Egger, directed by Richard Fleischer, written by Leslie Bercuse, nominated for nine. It won two Best Song, Talk to the Animals, and Best Special Visual Effects. Up next is The Graduate, a dramedy about a college graduate who doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. Stars Anne Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, and Catherine Ross. It's directed by Mike Nichols, written by Calder Willingham and Buck Henry. It's nominated for seven, and it won one. Best Director for Mike Nichols. Next, we have Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a drama about a white woman who brings her black fiancé home to meet her parents. 
It stars Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, and Catherine Houghton. Directed by Stanley Kramer and written by William Rose. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and it won two. Best Actress for Catherine Hepburn and Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen. And then finally is In the Heat of the Night, a drama about a black cop from Philadelphia who assists a murder investigation in the Deep South. Stars Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. It's directed by Norman Jewison and written by Sterling Siliphant. It's nominated for seven and it won five. Best Picture, Best Actor, Rod Steiger. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium. Best Film Editing and Best Sound. Wow. So to get a sense of film more broadly this year, we'll talk about the top five highest grossing movies of the year, which were The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Bonnie and Clyde, The Dirty Dozen, and Valley of the Dolls. So we've got three of our five in there. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Not bad. The winner's not in there, you'll notice. It's true. Do we have anything particularly notable in film to talk about this yeah. year? I've got an out? axe to grind this year. <laughs> okay. I think we all do. You'll have noticed that Sidney Poitier starred in two of those five nominees, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night. You will also probably know that these are two of the most significant and famous films of his great career. What you won't have noticed from our list is that he was not nominated for an Academy Award this year. What makes that worse is he was in another very popular and significant movie that year, To Sir With Love. Yep. He'd had three great movies that year mm-hmm. and they were like now nah. and not only was he not nominated but you know who was nominated all of his white co-stars yikes <laughs> i'm furious we found out about this when we were starting research on this episode several episodes ago and i've been so mad about it i've just been stewing and trying to rein it in but i just don't understand how this is possible what it's a, it's are a they doing? really bad look. It's an exceptionally I mean, imagine look. the hashtags if Twitter had existed in this day and age. No. I think people like will say, oh, we probably split the vote. But like, guys, you did a bad job. Yeah, they did a real bad job. So mad about that. But next. So as you may have noticed from the titles of the books I mentioned, 1967 is frequently cited as the first year of the new Hollywood, this new movement in filmmaking in Hollywood that was a shift from these sort of like big towards the end bloated roadshow pictures to these smaller dramas. Mm-hmm. And sort of an auteur director driven yes. kind of thing that still mostly is Hollywood today. Yes. So that's big news. It is big news. I think, you know, we saw that in our 1969 nominees where there was a real mix of films. And I think we're also seeing it in this year where there's kind of like a mix of types of films as this transition is happening. One of them in particular is pretty interesting standout (laughs) from the rest. Yeah. It's sort of the hello dolly of its year, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's appropriate. So let's talk about what won. We already Mm -hmm. said it was in the heat of the night. What was the general consensus at the time? Was Did they get it right, according to people of the 60s? So one of the things I was able to pull from the Peter Kramer book was The Graduate was kind of a critical darling from the beginning, or from at least pretty close to when it was released. So there was like a 1970s LA Times poll where it got listed as the best film of the 60s. In 1972, a USC panel of filmmakers and critics said it was one of the 50 best films of all time. You know, I don't know that people were 
super up in arms about in the heat of the night, but it seems like there was a critical consensus around the graduate maybe should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, less of a this movie's so bad it shouldn't have won thing and more of a you missed your chance to give the award to X, Y, Yeah, And is that still the case? I think it's a pretty similar case. Maybe not so specifically about The Graduate at this point. I think The Graduate was obviously a critical darling at the time. People have softened on it a little bit as years have gone by because it is sort of it speaks pretty specifically to that cultural moment, to be fair. But I do think there is sort of this idea that Likely it should have been The Graduate, maybe Bonnie and Clyde. I don't see a One lot of, of lists. One of these new Hollywood darlings. Exactly. I don't see a lot of lists that say In the Heat of the Night should have been the winner of 1967. So who cares about them? Let's talk about us. Are you mad that In the Heat of the Night won? I'm not. You? I'm mixed about it, but I don't think I'm mixed enough to be mad. So I'll say no. Okay. So we should go through the other nominees and say, would we have been mad? If they had won, starting with Bonnie and Clyde, would you have been mad if it had won? I'm going to say no. How about you? I'm going to say yes. Okay. Dr. Doolittle, would you have been mad? Yes. Yes. The Graduate, would you have been mad? No. Would you? I will also say no. And guess who's coming to dinner? Would you have been mad? No. You? I'm going to say yes. Okay. So we have a couple of mixed, a couple of agreed, and then... One double no. So we have one... That we agree should not have been nominated. So let's talk about Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle first. Okay. Do you want to give the summary or should I, or should we try to do it together? Because I watched this a while ago and I'm i watched not it confident. a while ago too. I think we're going to have to tag team this one, but we can keep it to broad strokes. So there's a guy named Dr. Doolittle. Uh-huh. He's a veterinarian and he has a very special skill and it's that he can talk to animals. <laughs> so So true. It's very helpful for him as a veterinarian. So then we also have this Irish guy and a child who is a friend of the Irish guy. And the two of them, the two of them visit Dr. Doolittle one day, become friends with Dr. Doolittle, basically. And Mm -hmm. there's also this woman floating around who has a crush on Dr. Doolittle. And the four of them all end up on a boat trip. So Dr. Doolittle wants to find this great pink sea snail of myth mm-hmm. and so he brings along the friends and the woman is sort of a stowaway and she comes too and so it's mostly their journey hanging out with the animals it's kind of a musical they sing songs occasionally not yeah. as much as i wanted them to so yeah they're meeting all these animals they're going on adventures i don't remember their other journeys before they get yeah. to the island so it's quite episodic feeling yes. in terms of its structure. The kid and the Irishman go to see Dr. Doolittle. He gives them the flashback that's his life story about how he became this person. Yes. And then a push me pull you, which is basically a llama with two heads, like just arrives at his house. It's like cat dog, but a llama. <laughs> yeah. And then he takes it to the circus and there's this whole circus bit. And then part of the circus bit is he meets this seal who's like, I want to go visit my husband in the North Pole. And so he agrees to help her escape and he throws her <laughs> into the ocean. But she's but dressed as a woman. falling in love with her and kissing her after we have to talk about that. song. We have to talk about that. <laughs> but he throws her into the ocean and people see it and think he's murdered a, a real woman because she's dressed as a human woman. And then yeah. He escapes from prison and then they go on this journey finally to find this pink sea snail, which he's been prepping for. And so like they're sort of also on the run. And then there's a storm and they wash up on this floating island. It's an island that's become detached from the continent. So it just kind of drifts around. And because the boat ran into it, they've gotten knocked off 
coarse and it's getting really cold and all the animals on the island are getting sick. And so they're going to be put to death for that. But then they figure out how to talk to a whale who then bumps them back in the right direction and then they're not put to death. And Dr. Doolittle's like, I've heard there's a moth that they know how to find that can take me to the moon. (laughs) But you guys should go home. And so his companions leave. But then he decides he's actually in love with the woman and that for some reason, like, he won't be put back on trial for running away from prison. I forget exactly what happens. And so he flies the moon moth back to England and we don't see them reuniting, which I thought was strange. Yeah. And that's the movie. It's it's very bizarre. <laughs> it's a strange film. <laughs> the tone is weird. The narrative is weird. The, every, the structure is strange. The writing is strange. The performances are strange. I just... And so baffled as to how this ended up nominated for Best Picture, because in addition to it just being weird all around, it feels very much like it's for children in lots of parts. Oh, it's definitely for children. So then you're just sort of also left with like, usually the Academy isn't nominating a lot of movies for children. Well, you know the story, right? Retell the story. So this movie was both a critical and commercial flop. And the studio didn't have a lot else going on that they could put up for Best Picture, and they'd spent a lot of money on it. And so in order to try to get this movie in the good graces, they did a bunch of showings for the Academy voters where they gave them a bunch of champagne and steaks, and it worked. So that's why it's nominated. Yeah, get people drunk works every time, but very bizarre. Very bizarre little movie. The seal scene is maybe one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Yeah, we got to talk about the seal scene. In a film. (laughs) So yeah, he's joined the circus with this two-headed llama. He's like made a deal with a circus promoter. They're like, he's getting a cut of it, which he wants money so he can go on this trip to find this big sea snail. And he meets this seal who's like, I would like to go visit my husband who lives in the Arctic. And he's like, I'm going to smuggle you out of the circus and take you to a place where you can then swim to the Arctic. And I'm not 100% sure why, but along the journey, he decides to disguise her by dressing her as a woman. So he gives her like a little bonnet and like a little dress. It's cute. And then as he's getting ready to like put her into the ocean, he sings her this song about how he wishes she were a real woman and who he could love and da 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 da. And then he does kiss her and then he chucks her into the ocean. It's like very funny (laughs) and just very strange. Well, and then, of course, immediately he gets caught by cops who think he just tossed a body into the ocean. Yeah. And he's like, it was a seal. And they and they're like, okay. <laughs> sure. It's so strange. It's, it's really like strange. completely romantic, the singing of the song and the kiss. But the way that song ends with him being like, I wish I could love you, throws into the ocean. It's like yeah. the visual of it is very funny. <laughs> it's pretty wild. <laughs> I will say, so this movie is based on a series of books, which apparently this is I think this is fascinating for today. We're so racist. They self-censored them in the 80s, much in the way that people are complaining about how people are taking Dr. Susan censoring them or Roald Dahl. The publishers of Dr. Doolittle voluntarily censored these books in like 1980 because they Mm -hmm. were so racist. And there is the element where when they go to that floating island, there is a tribe of black people on there. Yeah, as soon and as I they like, showed up, I was like, oh, no. Me too. But I thought it could have been worse. Oh, yeah. No, it totally could have. Because they let the native characters be like, the last time white men came here, they were such fucking assholes that blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're still quite superstitious, which is not yeah. great. But I was v- extremely nervous. And then I was like, this is better than I thought 
thought it was going to be. Yeah, same exact experience here. But <laughs> it was a weird little island they had going on, too. They had so many different kinds of animals. And I was like, yeah. how did they end up on this island? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much we want to talk about this movie, but it was weird. I don't think and not we should good. talk about it a lot. It's weird as hell, but also don't watch it. No. It wasn't good. <laughs> I don't understand it. It was not a good movie. If I mean, if you can find that seal scene on YouTube. Yeah, it's... I mean, maybe watch the seal scene because it was really something. I did like also at the beginning when it did they stay at his house because it's raining or something i forget exactly what it is but there's a reason when they first go to dr doolittle's that they stay overnight instead of going Mm -hmm. home and (laughs) they do realize that they have a child with them and maybe they should send some word back to his parents that he's not coming home for the night but what they do is send the parrot who talks to go to his house and give them the explanation (laughs) that he will be staying (laughs) and dr doolittle's and i'm like so this family has a bird fly up to them and say, your son's not coming home tonight, but no worries. He's staying with this stranger you've never met. <laughs> and they're just supposed to be like, sure, sure. checks out. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we shouldn't say too much because like, whatever, it's Dr. Doolittle. So our mix are Bonnie and Clyde and, and guess who's coming, to, coming dinner? to dinner. So I don't know, in either order, Bonnie and Clyde. Sure. It's about Bonnie and Clyde. Pretty short story to this one people will have heard of them they are outlaws who rob banks during the great depression they happen to meet each other in a small town one day clyde's rolling through and bonnie sees him out of her window and then very quickly they form this connection and head out of town on their mission i think it's less than 10 minutes into the movie they're like on their way out of town Mm -hmm. and so then the movie is just them finding some accomplices they find a guy who to be their getaway driver And then Clyde's brother and his wife end up joining the team and they become this gang of bank robbers traveling from place to place, having fun robbing banks. And then, you know, the law starts closing in on them. They grow to have cult status. And then the law, by the end of the movie, they have pissed off this one particular cop so much that he is trying to take them down by any means necessary. And so they they have a couple of close calls. The brother gets shot and his wife ends up getting taken in bonnie and clyde both get injured and so cw their driver takes them to his house to recover and then ultimately cw's dad sells them out and they get not captured but killed in an iconic new hollywood scene where they are riddled with bullets at the end of it and it is this like influential shot from cinema history but it's mostly just faye dunaway and robert redford no robin it's mostly warm <laughs> Robert Redford. He's not in this movie. I wish he, he was, but he's he not. Been. It's mostly Runaway and Warren Beatty. Yeah. Robin Banks. And having a fun time. Okay. So you said you wouldn't be mad. Yes. I said I would be mad. So go ahead. Tell me your thoughts. I appreciate that this movie is significant for its portrayal of violence. And generally just like style and, you know. And it's it has like some frank sexual content. I'm a modern person, so the violence didn't personally, you know, shock me. A lot of the re- contemporary reviews where people are like dismissing it are like, oh, this violence is grotesque. That's not my problem. I've seen more violent movies. I'm living in 2023. <laughs> We've all seen much more violent movies. I thought the character work in this movie was pretty shoddy. The mm-hmm. opening is a pretty egregious example of tell not show. Clyde basically just explains Bonnie's character which could be something about Clyde's character, but he never really shows that kind of insight about anyone else ever again. It's just a way to explain why Bonnie's coming along with him 
because I think the movie doesn't do a good job with her generally. Like halfway through the movie, she wants to see her mother. And it's like, you've never mentioned your mother before. You were happy to just leave with Clyde. Where's this coming from? (laughs) I think there's some interesting thematic content that they touch on, but it's super underdeveloped. And like the most consistent running conflict through the movie that they, at least the conflict that they show the most is both Clyde's impotence, which I don't know, I didn't really care about when he finally has sex with Bonnie. I wasn't like, yeah. The finally having sex with Bonnie is meaningless to me, but to me what's interesting about that is it plays like he is asexual. It's really interesting character stuff going on with him and her, but that's a whole other yeah. conversation. Well, we can talk about that too, because in the original script, he was supposed to be bisexual and they were supposed to be having like a three-way thing with CW. But then they thought that people would think that they were just sexual deviants. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think would have been more interesting and also I think would have explained the dynamic with CW better because dropping that out of the script explicitly, I think, makes their dynamic kind of strange. I feel like in this version, the dynamic is he's kind of like a kid to them. Okay. And then the other major running conflict is that Blanche and Bonnie just can't get along because, you know, women. Yeah. They don't get along. (laughs) So true. (laughs) And then I don't like, you know. We can have a conversation about how historically accurate it is. And it's, again, very funny. I don't think it's trying to be particularly historically accurate. But I think it's a shame that it's not. Because there's much more interesting stuff in this story that they didn't pick up on. I don't know how much you know about the history of Bonnie and Clyde. There's a podcast that I love called Last Podcast on the Left that did a three-episode deep dive on them probably several years ago at this point. And, like, another issue I had with the movie is I couldn't really figure out over what time period it was taking place. And... I don't think they did a good job of building tension with law enforcement and showing how it was impacting them. So, like, Clyde did cut off his toes in prison, like they say at the beginning of the movie, but it gave him a permanent limp. So Mm -hmm. he had a limp the entire time of the story. And then as they were going along, they were getting shot and getting away. So they're getting more and more injured, right? And, like, there was an episode where Clyde crashed their car and their car battery exploded and it doused Bonnie's legs in battery acid. So much that it ate the flesh down to the bone. Holy shit. And so basically for the last like six, eight months of their time together, she had to be carried everywhere. She like healed, but she also healed driving around in the car. So her legs were like permanently curled up. And it's like, this is a missed opportunity. (laughs) It's just a missed opportunity. It's a very different movie, all of those things. Without it, I don't know. There's just not a lot there, I think, for me. Yeah. Again, it felt kind of episodic with the bank robberies. Like I said, the character stuff wasn't really working for me. The thematic stuff was underdeveloped. Yeah, I just, there's multiple levels where I think this film just isn't very good. But how did you feel about it? I think it's fun. Okay. To me, the style of it is really fun. And I like Warren and Faye in it. I think that they're very charming. It's not trying to do anything that serious, really, which absolutely, if you had done a more historical telling of it it could have been very cool i just think that it's like stylish and enjoyable i don't think it's like much more serious than that i don't love love this movie but i do think it's a fun watch and i think that you know it's interesting to see as we're getting into the new hollywood stuff and the changes in cinema and the way that french new wave is starting to come into america they tried to get truffaut and godard at different points onto this movie So I think Truffaut actually did some work on it and then they wanted Godard to direct and it just wasn't coming together. And then that's how Warren Beatty found out about it is he he was visiting Truffaut. And so it just was like this sort of experimental, filmy, fun time thing that I think is enjoyable to watch. And then I did find 
the sort of unintentional asexual representation. Pretty interesting. <laughs> There's like this running thing throughout it where they're having these different discussions about it and just the way that he is presenting himself to her as someone who's like, I never saw any point of it. And you're like, okay, <laughs> cool. I, I, it's, is undercut, I think, at the end. Yeah, when I was going to ask. Achieves the, you know. He did it. <laughs> Aren't we all happy now? And it's like, I don't care if he's in But uh, Yeah, I just sort of, that part, I'm like, eh, who cares about this? <laughs> but I like CW. I like their relationship with CW. I just think it's like uh, fun. Yeah, I was bored. Did you know that the actress who plays Velma, who is Gene Wilder's companion, is named Evans Evans? No. <laughs> what a great name. Right? We should also say this is Gene Wilder's film debut. Yeah. He shows up for one of their episodes and I quite liked it. It's funny. I was reading some reviews on Letterboxd and people were like, love the Gene Wilder cameo. And I'm like, it's not a cameo. It's just a small role for a new actor. Yeah, it doesn't count as a cameo if he's literally never been in anything before. People weren't watching the movie like, ooh, Gene Wilder. <laughs> it's a cameo in retrospect. <laughs> I also like Gene Hackman in this movie, to be fair. But yep. I always like Gene Hackman. Yeah, Gene Hackman. Never great. seen a Gene Hackman I didn't like. But we talked a little bit before we started recording this about how funny it is that Estelle Parsons is the one who won an Oscar for this movie because that role is really something. <laughs> She's mostly screaming. Yeah, she plays Clyde's brother's wife who did not sign up for this and now is part of a gang that robs banks unexpectedly to her. She doesn't handle it well. Did you know that in real life, the person who comes to interrogate her when she's in the hospital after she's been captured and blinded by the glass was mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover? No. <laughs> what? Yeah. J. Edgar Hoover himself showed up. That's crazy. All right. I think we had very different experiences watching this film. It happens. It sure does. <laughs> okay. Should we move on to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Sure. So Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is about a young white woman from San Francisco who brings her black fiance home to her parents. And she has told her black fiance that, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. My parents have always not been bigots. They've told me to not be a bigot. Mm -hmm. What are you so worried about? (laughs) And then, you know, they get there and her parents are like pretty shocked, (laughs) pretty shocked and not sure what to do. And at the same time, the black fiance knows that his parents also would have some reservations about the marriage. And so the film is quite talky. It is an original screenplay, but it sort of feels like it could have been a stage play first. As You know how I love that. I know. (laughs) As these people work through this issue and they have put a timeline on it. So Sidney Poitier's The Black Fiance is a doctor who is needs to go to Geneva to do some work for the World Health Organization. And they basically are like, we need to know by the end of the day today that everyone is 100% on board with this or we (laughs) won't get married. Well, that's not – he says that to them. That's not the daughter's position. It's true. And so there's like a timeline set in the movie. That's the summary. Well, and then his parents end up coming to dinner and yeah, they all discuss and ruminate and, you know, come to decisions about themselves and each other. Mm -hmm. 
So this is, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Spencer, Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy are the parents. This is Spencer Tracy's last film role, and he was actually quite sick in the process yeah, of making it. he died it. like 17 days after they finished filming. They wouldn't insure him because he was so sick. So Catherine Hepburn didn't take her money to set aside Both the insurance. her and Stanley Kramer put their yeah. fee in escrow. To make sure they could finish the film. But all that said, I do think Spencer Tracy is quite good in it. He's hiding his illness very well. (laughs) The cast is all delightful. And yeah, it's super talky. I think we're going to get into all of your thing, your studies, your readings. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on with this one. (laughs) Yeah. But to me, what has always been interesting about this movie in terms of like explicitly race movies is I feel like the target of it is is sort of white liberals the whole point of it is like these white progressives are faced with this chance to either stand up to their principle like for their principles or not and that is the entire discussion of the thing and you do have the fun monsignor character there the whole time making fun of spencer tracy he's a delight (laughs) but yeah we should talk about all of the cultural everything about it because that is the major thing about this movie so I'll just say really quickly before we like get into that. Yeah. So I said I would be mad about this, but I do. Re- I really like this movie. I think it's the, particularly the three lead performances of Spencer Tracy, Sidney Poitier and Catherine Hepburn are yes. fabulous. Shockingly. Yes. We'll talk about this in specifics, but the speech that Sidney Poitier gives to his father, the fact that he wasn't nominated for an Oscar for that scene alone. <laughs> what are we doing? Unacceptable. What are we doing? Yeah, no, they're they're fabulous. I also thought the actors B. Richards and Roy Glenn, who played Sidney Poitier's character's parents, were quite good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just think compared to some of the other films, the direction is maybe not as interesting. It is really focused on the performances. Yeah. The whole time constraint feels kind of artificial and like we get it. It's so this movie can happen, but it doesn't feel like something that would have to happen. And then there's just little things where I'm like, I'm not sure that I love this. I'm not sure the made comic relief really works super well. I'm not sure that this scene where Spencer Tracy goes for ice cream and then gets into an accident with that guy is super necessary. Although I was obsessed with the woman who played the waitress. She's, she's so great. like, yeah, she's such a teenager. And him like trying to draw her into this long conversation about the ice cream when she couldn't give a less of a shit. Yeah. <laughs> I loved her performance. She's fantastic. Um, but yeah. So the big question for me with this movie and the critical reaction to it at the time and now, honestly, is even at the time, people were saying, oh, this movie is dated. Mm-hmm. They were saying like, oh, you know, it's not great that Sidney Poitier's character is so idealized that he's this basically perfect person. It'd be better if he was more flawed. Mm-hmm. And what I can't reconcile in my brain, what I can't understand is how people could say that when the world was the way it was yep (laughs) so in the the peter kramer book the new hollywood he has some public opinion polling from the time so in 1966 76 percent of white people disapproved of marriages between whites and non-whites and 43 percent of whites would object if quote, a member of their family wanted to bring a black friend home for dinner. <laughs> That's crazy. It's a big number. That's a like, huge it, number. It's not, that doesn't feel like a settled issue. So I just have a number of like things that were happening. 
Here's a fun fact. Yeah. The pilot for the ABC sitcom Bewitched sat on the shelf for more than a year, a victim of complaints by the network Southern Stations that its comic story of an advertising man whose wife is a witch was a veiled argument for racial intermarriage. They couldn't release Bewitched <laughs> for a year. She's a different race than him, for sure. The Secretary of State's daughter of the United States married a black man, and it was so controversial, he offered to resign instead of embarrassing the Johnson administration. Yeah. To Lyndon Johnson's credit, he did not accept his resignation because, of course, he wouldn't. But this conversation is so dated. Everyone's moved on. We're all fine with interracial marriage now. And then one of my favorite things, so this is an anecdote in Pictures at a Revolution. So Stanley Kramer was very upset that he was getting this feedback from white elite liberal critics that like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is already behind the times. Oh, they should have complicated this more, blah, blah, blah. And he was quite hurt because he was like, I'm trying to do something important and meaningful. And so he goes on a tour of colleges to speak to college kids about the movie who are responding much more strongly to Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. And he gets roundly criticized. In particular, there was one story he went to Northwestern University and they were like, oh, why did they only show them kissing in the rearview mirror and not in front? Oh, why aren't these two characters having sex canonically? Oh, why isn't Sidney Poitier's character more complicated? Would you like to guess, Maddie, how many students at Northwestern University were black? Probably none. On on average. And so prior to 1966, on average, there were five black students enrolled in each incoming class. Oh, wow. 80% of whom were male athletes. Yeah. There's a very funny anecdote. This is from Northwestern University's website. Students such as Herman Cage, who was a freshman at Northwestern in 1965 with a height of five foot three, was often mistaken for a basketball or football player. Because he was black. <laughs> and all the black students. Our basketball and football players. Yeah. You know how many students were at Northwestern? So maybe like, oh, maybe there are 100 kids at Northwestern yeah, in 1966. Yeah, and five of them are black. No, no, no. 8,700. That was the undergraduate body. So it's a real high horse to be on Northwestern University students to be like, why isn't this movie more progressive? Yeah. Look around you. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally look around you. There were like four black women on campus total at the time like it's wild so i i just i don't understand i don't understand how people can be saying that but this is what the world looks and stanley kramer received death threats and they had to talk about whether or not they could open the film in the south and we said loving v virginia was this year interracial marriage was illegal in large swaths of the country yeah i just i i don't understand how these things can exist in the same space. I'm I'm legitimately confused about it. Well, I mean, because it doesn't make any sense, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense because, of course, the all of the white liberals were like, we've moved on, and all of the, you right. know, white racists And then I was saying to you, like, too, like, the, the flaw, I think, methodologically <laughs> with pictures out of revolution in the discussion of this film is he's quoting, Mark Harris is quoting all of the contemporary critics, they're all white, which, like, again, hey, how come but no major newspaper has a black critic yeah. who they can talk to? Aren't we past this? I think they're all saying we're past this. We're post-racial, don't you know? It's fucking 1967. We're not post-racial. I mean, I'm ambivalent about the question of Sidney Poitier's perfection, but I understand the motivation of the filmmakers to do that. And I just don't think there was a lot of wiggle room in another direction, practically. I get that you can logically make an argument that he's too perfect to be a real character, but... 
that argument is meaningless. Like, obviously, he's too perfect. It's intentional. You look at him and you're like, duh. Like, they they made him as perfect as a person could be so that her parents could have no objection to him, right? No right. possible objection. And yet, the objection remains. <laughs> That's the point. Your question about him not being realistic is a meaningless question. This is not a real life thing. This is art. And it's making a point. And the point is quite clear. So anyway, it's wild to me. It's 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 wild to me. But yeah. damn, the, the three leads are great in this movie. They're so incredibly good. The dialogue's fantastic. The speech, we should say more specifically, the speech that Sydney gives his dad is one of my favorites. It's so good because the point of the speech is basically older people need to get on board with progress or fucking die already. <laughs> it's like, couldn't agree more, man. Everybody feels like the world, the way they grew up, is how it's supposed to be. But maybe not. Maybe not. But yeah, he's so good. And then I love the speech Sydney's character's mother gives to Spencer Tracy Mm -hmm. about how men get older and then forget how it felt to be passionately in love with their wives. And you're like, this is so good. That's the thing. I love that also that that's the thing that changes his mind. And he's like, you know what? Fuck you. I love my wife so much. Yeah, they have to go back to like, this is love. Are you opposed yeah. to love? Yeah, because you can talk on and on about the practicalities. And I understand that in his mind, he thinks he's not reacting this way because he's racist, but because the world is racist and he just wants to protect his daughter. But that's the exact same argument of people being like, my child is gay. I don't want them to be gay because it's going to be so much harder for them. Not because I have any problem with it. Yeah. You're just like, this is bullshit. You're standing in the way of progress. Right. The thing to do it's is you. to find ways to support them. I will also say I love the scene when Catherine Hepburn fires that woman from the gallery. It's so good. <laughs> it's such a great scene. Catherine, you rule. Yeah. I was like, hell yeah. It's the best firing scene ever. And I also think it's so funny how blissfully unaware of everything the daughter is through the entire film. There's never a point where she thinks she's in danger of her parents not approving of this. <laughs> and so there's all this stuff going on in the background of like, oh, yeah. I don't think it's going to work out. And she's like, no, it's great. We're going to get on the plane tonight. And you're like, okay. And I think that's so important, too, for the story they're telling, where she is this direct reflection of their actual values. This is what they have said to her. This is what they and raised, she's right? mirroring it back at them. And that's also a really important function for the film. Even though you might think she should be less naive, but... But this is what they told her to be, Mm -hmm. and she did it. Great job. (laughs) So maybe you guys should just, you know, follow your own advice. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I can't wait to talk about this when we get to the year of Get Out, because there are so many great references Mm -hmm. to this movie in that movie. I think it's good. I think it's good, and I also think... As I've already said, it feels different than other movies about solving racism (laughs) because most of those movies are about some really racist white person who makes friends with a black person and sees the error of their ways. Whereas this is so much more complex and like useful, really. Like, I don't know how many movies really convince a super virulently racist white person that they should see black people differently after they watch it. Whereas this is something where like, maybe I need to actually, I say that I'm really progressive, but if my own daughter came home with a black fiance, how would I Mm -hmm. feel like this is the conversation people need to be having that's useful? Yeah, I think it's good. I think 
Sydney should have been nominated for something. And if someone can really explain to me how this movie was regressive at the time, juxtaposed with the world at the time, I'd love to hear it. (laughs) I'd love to hear from these Northwestern University students who had no black people around them at their university. Well, and I also love the idea of them being like, your movie's not progressive enough because of blah, blah, and blah. So what I really like are these movies that have no black people in them. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You're like, why can't your movie be just like The Graduate? And you're like, what? I don't I don't think that's fixing it either, man. <laughs> All right. So that brings us to our two double yeses. I think we should probably finish with the winner. Our two double no's. Thank you. The way we structure <laughs> this podcast is not confusing at all. We're just keeping ourselves on our toes. <laughs> so we probably should finish with the winner, which means we should talk about The Graduate. The Graduate. So The Graduate is about a guy who's just graduated from his undergraduate experience. And he was very successful at school. Hmm. He was on the swim team, debate team. He's some kind of scholar, which is maybe a scholarship to pay for graduate school. I was a little unclear what that was exactly. But anyway, he comes home to his family's house in Southern California. I can't remember where exactly they are. I feel like they're in like Pasadena or something. I don't know. And He's like depressed, basically. <laughs> Ennui. Yeah. It caught him. He doesn't know what to do. His parents are like, what are you going to do next? The movie starts off with a party that is, his parents have thrown for him where all their friends come. He doesn't seem yeah, to have any him, friends. The party yeah. is. And they're like, well, Benjamin, you're so great. What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with all this potential? And he's like, I have no idea. And so there's someone at the party, Mrs. Robinson, who is like, will you drive me home, Benjamin? And he gets kind of harangued into driving her home early from this party. And then she seduces him. <laughs> yeah. Well, at that night, she mostly attempts to seduce him. She yeah. does. She <laughs> she basically corners him into her daughter's bedroom, shows up with no clothes on. And she's like, I will have sex with you whenever you want. Just give me a call. He's like, what? <laughs> it's a bold move. He's like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> And so he says no at first, and then he's continuing to experience his ennui, the pressure from his parents, not knowing what he wants to do, and eventually he decides to call up Mrs. Robinson, and they meet at a hotel, and they start having an affair. And at the same time, Mr. Robinson has been saying to Benjamin, oh, our daughter's coming home from Berkeley. When she comes, you should take her out, Ben. I think you two would get along swimmingly. And at first, Mrs. Robinson is like, do not date my daughter. If you date my daughter, all it's hell's going to break really loose. really weird, dude. <laughs> but I think eventually Mr. Robinson or the parents are like, we're all going to get together with Elaine anyway. And so he's like, I don't yeah. want to do that with everyone around me. So I'll no. just take her out. Yes. And so he takes her out and he specifically tries to make it the worst experience she's ever had in her life. So it won't happen again. But then he feels badly about it. And then they actually end up having a nice date and they connect and Mrs. Robinson is not happy about it. She ends up revealing, well, he had told her that he had had an affair with an older married woman, but obviously yes. not said, like, it's your mom. Yeah. And then it becomes clear that Mrs. Robinson is going to reveal that she had the affair with Ben. And so he does it. And then Elaine's like, I straight up do not want to see you anymore. <laughs> no. And so Ben then decides, like, no, Elaine is what I want in my life. He ends up following her up to Berkeley and basically stalking her until he's able to explain to her what happened. And they start sort of dating until Mr. Robinson comes up and is like, nah, 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 nah. 
not going to happen. He brings Elaine home. She ends up getting married to this other guy she had met while she was up there. and Or she's going to be married. And Ben is racing to get to her to stop the wedding. And he gets there just after they say I do. But they still run off together. And then there's the iconic shot at the back of the bus where they're like, oh, wait, what now? What have we done? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to talk about this movie in two halves as if we could. So like... I think the first half of this movie is incredible and perfect. And then I think the second half of this movie is less incredible and perfect. I think that's a fair characterization. So like if we could just gush about the first half of this let movie. Us, let us gush about first. it. There's a lot to gush about in the first half of the movie. Of where to even begin. It's one of those films. I know we've had this conversation. We will have this conversation about Casablanca where you get to the end of Casablanca and you're like, this is so weird because it's just iconic Famous cliche quotes. stuff. Yeah. And like the beginning of this movie is just iconic stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like a lot. Not just quotes. There are like iconic shots. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff going on in this where you're like, oh, yeah, and that and that <laughs> and that part. Yeah. It's so good. Him on so, the bottom yeah. of the pool. Come on. Yeah. It starts with the sound of silence and him in the airport. And then it gets to this party, which Mike Nichols shoots in super close up on everyone. It's so claustrophobic. so claustrophobic. It's great. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the plastics scene. <laughs> oh, so the plastic good. scene. I just want to say one word, yeah. Are you listening? Plastics. plastics. <laughs> And then, of course, when Mrs. Robinson gets Benjamin to her house, the through the leg shot, the, oh, are you great. trying to seduce me, Mrs. Yeah. Robinson? The scene where his parents make him try on the diving costume it's is like incredible, surreal how weird it is. And then I'd forgotten about the fact that he gets into the pool in the diving costume and, and his, his dad shoves his head down. He's continuing to shove him underwater. And it's like, oh, good. Horrifying. It's so good. I'd also straight up forgotten that his dad was Mr. Feeny. Mr. And Mr. Feeny. And Mr. Robinson is the mayor from Jaws. And I yes, like, I wrote down the exact same things. I was like, Feeny and the mayor from Jaws? Ben, you're living a wild life. <laughs> There's also this great line where Ben says to Mrs. Robinson, this is one of the most insane lines of dialogue I've ever heard. I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends. I wrote that down too. <laughs> it's so good. What an amazing compliment. <laughs> Oh, my God. I mean, Ben himself is just such a fascinating character. He's so fucking bumbling and, like, unself-aware and just being buffeted through this world of (laughs) much more, like, confident people than him. And just the stuff, like, this is probably around the middle when it starts to turn, but I really love when you start to get the sense things are going to go wrong with his relationship with Mrs. Robinson when they're in bed and he's like demanding that she have a conversation with him mm-hmm. and he's not, she's not wanting to do that. Cause she's not in this really to like have an emotional Connect. connection with him because yes. <laughs> he's some idiot child. <laughs> and so he's like forcing it and forcing it. And then he, they ultimately decide they're going to like talk about art or something. Cause he wants to talk about something that adults would talk about, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so she starts talking about it and she's like, I'm not really that interested in art. And then it gets to a point where he asks her what her college major was and she says art. And he doesn't understand at all what's happening. And he's just like, oh, I guess you lost interest in it. (laughs) She's like there with the most, like the saddest expression on her face about her entire wasted life. (laughs) Right. She got pregnant early by her husband and had to drop out of college and marry him. And clearly like this is a grave disappointment. Yeah. 
But no, he's not processing like, that She's at all. a much more interesting character because sh- this is her like midlife crisis and all mm-hmm. of this stuff that's happening and what she's going through. And she's experiencing just as much existential angst as him. But he's like 22 year old who's just sort of like, blah, 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 blah. And she's going to do for work. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, is my life wasted? Like, is my entire, did I have any purpose at all? But yeah, that scene where she says she majored in art and he's just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so yeah. much. I also love the way Mike Nichols shot sort of like the montage once they start having an affair and he's yeah. coming in and out of rooms that are his parents are in and then back to the rooms with Mrs. Robinson. It's great. He's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. I mean, Mike Nichols is the best. It's really good. It's stylish. There are lots of amazing iconic shots and like the isolation of him on the bottom of the pool. And that scene is really in a lot of like pov stuff where you're looking out through his mask from inside mm-hmm. and he can't hear anything anyone's saying to him because obviously he's got rubber over his ears and all of his, his parents are just like we're having so much fun he's like i'm not i fun. love his parents i was saying this to you earlier they are truly just living their best lives they're these like very wealthy clearly quite happy people with like a thriving social life <laughs> I don't understand why their son is really going through it. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not really aware of that at all. They're no. like, we're all having a great time, right? And he's like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm having a terrible time. And they're like, sure. <laughs> okay. Let's have a party. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first half. It's awesome. And yeah. honestly, when I started, I was like, how did this movie not win Best Picture? And then I got to the back half and I was like, oh, this might be why. So I think the turn is once the breakup with Elaine happens and we get to like the Berkeley chapter, things really sort of start to slow down and get kind of like wonky. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think Catherine Ross is really good as Elaine. I do think her character is underdeveloped. Yeah. They hint at things that I actually think are quite interesting because it, she's really riding the line of, what's her internal life? Is he fully imagining her as a character, right? Are Mm -hmm. we like just so much in his perspective that he actually knows nothing about her? And so everything we've learned about her is something he made up anyway. And you sort of get that. And then things will happen. I really like when they're kind of getting back together on campus and you're like, why does she really want to get back together with him? And he's like asking her to marry him. And she's like, yeah, maybe. And you're like, why does she maybe want to marry him? And then she throws out there like, well, I also told this other guy I might marry him. And you're like, oh, <laughs> like, I think I, I really understand much more what's going on with her now. Yeah. But yeah, you're never in her perspective. So you're just having to sort of glean all of that from yeah. whatever we're being shown. It's also revealed in the back half that the story Mrs. Robinson has told Elaine and her husband is that Benjamin raped her. Yeah. And like they just sort of resolve it in the Elaine Benjamin relationship by him being like, I didn't. And I yeah. think that's and like a like, really what? heavy thing for the movie to introduce. And I don't think it handles it well. No. And you sort of understand why that would be her story. Like she's trying to save herself from this thing that she's done and explain herself to her child and husband who are clearly really upset about it. And so this is the story she's come up with. But yeah, the scene where he finds out that that's what she was told. And then he's just sort of like, oh, no, that's not what happened. And she's like, oh, really? Okay. (laughs) You're like, what? Yeah. Like, why are you taking his word for it so easily? It's not great. No. Yeah, that, but then that's not the great. ending is also super iconic and good. Yeah. So yeah, there's just like this middle bit where you're like, Ooh, there's a lull. Yeah. 
And then, of course, the running to the chapel, shaking the glass. Elaine! Elaine! Elaine. And Mrs. Robinson yelling at Elaine, it's too late. Not for me! Not for me. It's incredible. It's really good. It's just so good. And then, I mean, the scene of them on the bus, like, coming down from the high of having done this thing and realizing they still actually don't know what they want to do with their lives. Like, probably they want to be together. Finding this new obsession thing to devote yourself to has not actually solved any of your issues. So good luck to you. Yeah. It's like... 85% an excellent movie. Yeah, which is pretty good. I mean, it's pretty good. I think 85% excellent is very good. It's pretty good. And that's why I would have said it could have won Best Picture. And I'd be like, yeah, checks out. Yep. And then, I don't know. It's wild that this is just Mike Nichols' second film that he did. Well, they they came on to this because they had heard that he was going, they had heard like Elizabeth Taylor wanted him for Virginia Woolf. And Mm -hmm. so that's how he came. He was a play guy. Yeah, a very successful play director. Yeah. He won a Tony three years in a row. He's the best. Well, how do you think the man's E got it? Like multiple times. I mean, he's very good. Not according to Pauline Kale. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> we should probably say what that was. What did I tell you that she said that? She didn't like his directing. She didn't like his directing. And she, she said, said it reminded her um, television commercials. Yeah, Nichols' technique was a bad joke and compared it to a television commercial. And I said to you, television commercials must have must been, have been awesome. so cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's doing so much with the camera. The directing is fascinating. I love the parallel scene. Like we talked about this sort of isolation of him on the bottom of the pool, but I love that mm-hmm. mirrored with the shot of Mrs. Robinson when like everything's falling apart and everyone's about to find out. He's just told the daughter and then that shot zooms out from her in the corner of her hall and she's just alone yes, and tiny in the middle of the screen. Over, yeah. yeah. So good. That leads us to our winner in the heat of the night. What's it about? It is about the deep south town of Sparta, Mississippi. We start with like a late night cop doing his rounds and he stumbles upon this dead body in the middle of town. Mm -hmm. And they are like, we have to find out who killed this guy. He's a very important businessman. And so he goes by the bus station and finds Sidney Poitier sitting in this train station waiting for the middle of the night train that he's trying to get on and so since he's alone and a stranger in the southern town he clearly is the murderer Mm -hmm. great police work he brings him in and then psych like that awkward moment they find out he's actually a cop from the north they've accidentally arrested an innocent cop and not just a cop, but the best homicide detective in Philadelphia. What city is yep, from? Yeah, it's Philadelphia. So they're going to let him go because he's like, this is bullshit. Why are you handling me this way? But then he gets on the phone with his boss because that's who he had them call to vouch for him. And the boss is like, you should probably help them out because they don't know what they're doing solving homicides. And you're very good at it. He's like, I really don't want to do that because <laughs> they really suck. But he does get talked into it because the, the new chief down there somehow is big enough to ask him for help there's an early scene in the movie that i was surprised by where he's like i don't know what i'm doing and you do so can't you help me here so he does stay to investigate this murder and then you know it follows pretty traditional procedural cop beats at that point nothing in here will surprise you investigation wise (laughs) so they're going through all of these beats and they have various suspects that they think it could be every time there's a new suspect the chief 
finds one shred of circumstantial evidence and is ready to hang the person. And so there are multiple people that Poitiers' character has to be like, actually, I don't think it is them. Meanwhile, the widow of the guy is really like on their backs to make sure this is solved. And she wants Sidney Poitiers there because he's the only reason that they didn't arrest the wrong guy at first. Well, at second, since he was the first one they were. Yeah, second. <laughs> so they're running the case. They're working all the leads. There's this various other stuff going on in town. Clearly, there are lots of racist people trying to run Sidney Poitier out of town. He has multiple encounters with gangs of roving racists. And then there also is a really important businessman in the town who runs a plantation. It's very on the nose what's going on with this guy. But there's this like super racist white guy who runs plantation in town who becomes a suspect at one point because you know, things from his orchid farm happen to be in the car of the murder guy. There's a clue. There's a clue. So they go out to see the guy. Sydney is convinced it's him and he wants to nail him. And they have this confrontational scene that is like the most iconic scene of the film, other than they call me Mr. Dibbs, where the white guy slaps Sydney Poitier and Sydney Poitier slaps him right back. And yeah. like audiences lost their shit. <laughs> But anyway, it turns out to not be that guy. And in an even more Law and Order 101, it is the very first person that we saw on screen who is the the waiter at this diner. And they put him away. And then Sidney Poitier is finally going to be able to leave town, having forged this relationship of respect with the white racist chief in the heat of the night. Mm -hmm. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I think this is a fun movie. So I think it's an enjoyable watch. I think it holds your attention. It's not like the most, well, certainly today, groundbreaking procedural you've ever seen. No. <laughs> As of today, there is not a single thing that happens procedurally where you're not like, oh, really? Yeah. But I think it's like the structure of it is fine. And it's it's not really the point. The point is Sydney and Rod Steiger yeah. and their interactions I did think it was also well-directed. I think Norman Jewison does some really interesting things as he's uh, going through this film. I think the score, which was done by Quincy Jones, and like the title song, which is sung by Ray Charles. I know. We, I started it and, and Ray Charles comes in and I'm like, excuse me? I didn't expect this. And that's when I, I saw Quincy Jones and I was like, oh. Yeah. And yeah, I just think there's some very interesting scenes between Sidney Poitier and, and Ron Steiger. They're both great in it. Their performances are great. Yeah. I think the two like big thrill moments of this, they call me Mr. Tibbs and the slap scene still totally work. Yeah. Like they're great. You know what was weird though? Both mm. this movie and Bonnie and Clyde have a nude woman whose breasts are obscured by a window frame and then they both suggestively drink a Coca-Cola. It was big in 1967. <laughs> That was all the rage. Yeah. So yeah, I like it. I'm not mad that it won. I think I think it's a pretty interesting film too, in terms of the dynamic between Potier and, and Steiger. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there were parts of it that I really liked. I agree with you completely that they call me Mr. Tibbs and the slap, both still, for lack of a better word, slap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those right, are yeah. great scenes. And they absolutely still work today. Uh, and you can put yourself in the mindset of a person in 1967 who, like, even now that's cool. But at the time, a black guy slapping a white guy on screen was, like, mind-blowing. And that's part of the reason Sidney Poitier agreed to do this movie. Part of what he made them agree to was that he would get to slap the white guy and that it would stay in every cut of the film that was released. Which, like, rules. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, yeah. Sidney. But... <laughs> 
And there is interesting stuff with the chief and him, much as I am exhausted by that dynamic in film. It is 1967. People got to make movies about black people and white people being friends. My favorite genre of film. I really like the scene they've like maybe kind of started to bond and then it's late at night and they're at the house together and the chief starts to open up to him and then as soon as Sidney Poitier starts to get on his level then the chief is like don't pity me get the fuck out of here <laughs> and you're like that's an interesting dynamic it's a scene where it's late in the movie so they've been investigating together and, and I think the story's taking place over like a couple of days and they're not yeah. getting much sleep so they're exhausted and they've gone back to Rod Steiger's house and they're like having whiskey or something mm-hmm. And Rod Steiger starts talking about how he's very lonely. Like he's in this town. No one wants him here. He's like not from this Yeah, small he's a town. new chief, which doesn't become clear until a little bit into the movie. I don't know. I think he says he's like, I'm 37 years old, no wife, no kids. He looks like he's like 55. <laughs> it's 67. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> but anyway, he says he's 37, no wife, no kids. Yeah. Sidney Poitier is the first person who's ever come to his house. And yeah. he's having just like this real moment. But then, yeah, he's like no, I'm not connecting with you. And I think the ending is more ambivalent than a lot of the white people and black people are friends now mm-hmm. movies in terms of what the status of their relationship and connection is. Yeah. Which I think makes it stronger than if it was like, we're buddies now. See you in... in I'll come visit you. Come to live visit me anytime. You know, I don't... I was thinking of 48 hours. Oh, God. Yeah. And I think this movie does not end like that, where they're like, you were real racist to me, but now we're begrudging. As much as Rod Steiger is like, take care of yourself, I don't know that Sidney Poitier is like, you too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to get the fuck out of here. Which I think is the most important element of that dynamic, which is, you know, 48 hours failed at, where the black character should not leave this interaction being like, I have respect for you all. So we should leave like, okay, bye now. And I felt like it was it was there. So I think it's a little bit more ambivalent than a lot of, yeah white people and black people are friends now but there's just some great scenes Sydney's great in it I love the scene too when he tells the widow that her husband has died I thought that was a really interestingly I thought so too and I thought it was an interestingly shot scene because I Mm -hmm. was fascinated that they stay on his face and the back of her head for the entire time that he's telling her her husband is dead whereas like that's not how scenes like this (laughs) normally play out she's the one having an emotional experience but we're like how's this affecting him (laughs) well i think he's watching her right he's a super cop he's like was she involved yeah no she seems real sad yeah i guess she's just sad or something (laughs) also they did such weird cop things in this like there's a point where they think they've got the guy now and they bring him into a room with the widow (laughs) and i was just like what is this? They're very incompetent. Who does police work this way? This is insane. The way that the real murderer is revealed played out very strangely to mm-hmm. me. In the first scene with the diner and the cop, the text of it is the cop comes in late at night all the time to this diner and he wants pie. And this guy who run- runs the diner is like, we don't have any pie. I already sold all the pie, but I have this marble cake black and white marble cake for you and the cop is like i don't want that and so you're like okay this feels like a you know interesting race metaphor and then he turns out he'd been hiding the pile along so i feel like at at first you're like is this guy cool (laughs) like is this a guy who's like fuck cops i'm not giving you your pie no no and then there's this turn later where it turns out he's actually a real piece of shit he gets a scene to be really racist to Sidney poitier and then of course ends up being the murderer in a way that didn't really make any sense to me timeline wise but what are you gonna do 
But yeah, I mean, obviously there's interesting conversations going on in this. Maybe if the procedural was not so played out, (laughs) it would have been more enjoyable for me in 1967. But I do think, yeah, there's certainly interesting stuff going on here. And he and Rod Steiger are both great. And I'm not mad about it. It's fine. It's not my favorite movie of the year, though. Yeah, it's not it's not the strongest procedural. So don't come into the movie expecting that. Come into the movie being ready more to key into their dynamic and yep. what's going on with them. And if that's your expectation, I think you'll have a better time. And also come in ready to see some rich white guy get slapped in the face and it's then cry just about great. it. He cries and you're like, why the fuck are you crying? Like the scene's so interesting. I love the way, yeah, that they hold on him and he turns around towards the camera and just starts welling up. Like, is he crying for the lost days of yore when he would have been able to... <laughs> You know, have you ever like hurt yourself and you're like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then you're like, I'm not fine. That's a really funny reading of it. (laughs) It really hurts. I like that a lot. But yeah, the slap is pretty good. I loved his, he has a black butler who's come in to bring Sidney Poitier lemonade, which I also loved when he comes in and Rod Steiger's like, no, we don't want anything. And Sidney Poitier's like, I'll, I'll take some lemonade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the way the good. butler reacts to him slapping him in the face is like, oh my God. And then he shakes his head at him as he leaves. And you're like, this whole dynamic is very interesting. <laughs> there is an uncomfortable moment where Sidney Poitier is doing his police work and then shows up at this black female abortionist's place and threatens her with the full force of the law to reveal so-and-so because he's trying to solve this thing. And he's like, you know, it'll be worse for you in prison. And you're like, Jesus fucking Christ, dude. This is fucked up. Don't do it, Sydney. Although it was interesting that that's his mom from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't do that Very to your mom, Why Sydney? would you say this to your mother of all people? Come on. <laughs> that's uh, in the end of the night. It sure a is. Great opening theme from Rachel. Probably the best so music good. of the year. Better than The Graduate? Oh, fair point. I was, I was like, sorry. There I was is just, another movie with really iconic music. I was just thinking about Dr. Doolittle and the banjo <laughs> score of Bonnie and Clyde. It is better than those. For sure. All right. So we should talk about if there's anything else that should have been nominated this year. We watched anything else. We did. We watched a couple other things, some culturally relevant things. And we have added another to our column of foreign film famous directors that we've been trying to watch. So we're feeling pretty good about that. (laughs) Yep. So we did. Meeting personal goals. Cool Hand Luke. Mm Mm-hmm. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which is our, our foreign film. Sergio Leone. And Barefoot in the Park. Should we start with Cool Hand Luke? Sure. So Cool Hand Luke is a Paul Newman picture about mm-hmm. <laughs> a guy who's come home from World War II, a distinguished military guy who now is unmoored or whatever, doesn't know what to do with his life. He also is experiencing ennui. It happens when you come back from war. Or when you finish college, I guess. (laughs) Those are the same. Yeah. So anyway, he's just drunkenly getting up to no good in this town. And he gets arrested and sent to a chain gang southern prison camp. It's a return to I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. And so he goes to this camp. He's going to get put to work. He's like blending into the dynamics of the camp, making friends with the guys. He's super chill. And so he ends up becoming kind of like this folk hero (laughs) to the men Mm -hmm. of the camp the head guy 
like the the main most influential guy of the camp decides that he really likes him and he's going to be his new best friend and so they all love how cool he is and how all the bosses at the camp can't get him down and he's just like he's paul newman they're like we wish we were like him <laughs> and so they have all these various things they're doing their work there's a scene where they're supposed to be tarring this road and to get a win over the bosses at the camp, Paul Newman is like, what if we just worked really fast and we finished early and then they don't have anything else for us to do. So we'll have like two hours at the end of the day to just sit around doing nothing. And it's like this big win for them in the moment, even though at the time you're like, you're not going to win. The prison system's going to grind you down. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they have various things. He wins them over. They call him Cool Hand Luke because he has this cool line when they're playing poker about how sometimes nothing could be a real cool hand. <laughs> His mother comes at one point in the movie, there's a scene with them, and then she's clearly very ill, and she ends up dying. And so when she dies, because I guess people try to break out of prison to go to their parents' funerals, even though like, you probably should be allowed to go to your parents' Yeah, she'd probably funeral. just let them go to the funeral, and yeah. it wouldn't be an issue, but you okay. Would think, but anyway, that because they don't want him to run away from this prison, they put him in the box, which is this like solitary confinement. It's like an outhouse that they lock you in outside in the middle of the day in the South. It's really super fucked up. So they put him in there, and he's like, this is wrong. Like, his sense of injustice is, won't stand for it. So he decides that he is going to run away. So he gets away. They bring him back. Like, this happens a couple of times. And every time he's gotten away and come back, of course, he's a little more beaten down by this whole process. And so we get to a point where they really don't like him, (laughs) the people running the prison, because he's Mm -hmm. causing a lot of trouble for them. So they decide they're going to, like, break his spirit. And they force him to dig this ditch and then refill the ditch, dig the ditch, refill the ditch. It's really fucked up. He ends up escaping for a final time. And his the friend Dragline who loves him comes along with him. And then as soon as they're out, things sort of fall to pieces. Dragline ends up being his, there's like religious themes to this. So Dragline is like his Judas who turns him into the cops and the cops come and they end up murdering him instead of taking him in because they don't want him anymore. And so they take him away. Dragline goes back to the prison and then there's this ironic sad ending where he's like he was great he was smiling when they took him away and they knew they'd never beat him and you're like he continues to spread the gospel of cool hand hand luke they killed him (laughs) did they beat jesus by killing jesus yeah sure (laughs) we'll see if that if that ends up working their belief in luke gets them all through their time in prison but anyway it's a movie about prison and how fucked up it all is yeah you had seen this before right yeah okay i had not this was my first watch i thought this movie was okay to pretty good i'm gonna shock you by saying i thought paul newman was very good in this movie that's stunning (laughs) i know (laughs) i also enjoyed the direction there's all kinds of stuff happening in the background of scenes with the prisoners like when paul goes out to talk to his mom they're just two prisoners who are jumping rope together. i love it's it very cute yeah before this the famous scene where paul eats 50 eggs uh george kennedy's stretching out his belly and there's just like a guy who's kind of like dancing in the background <laughs> yes i loved all that stuff <laughs> yeah and i really liked the scene between luke and his mom i thought that was quite good and then mm-hmm. i loved paul after he found out she died and he was playing that oh song. my god and he cries and sings plastic jesus Oh, that's quite affecting. Yeah. I don't know that I needed the scene in this movie where that woman washes the car. <laughs> I think that's so funny. I all the whole time there's a scene 
where I'm like, is this scene the inspiration for this entire cliche of women washing cars? I don't know mm-hmm. the answer to that, but it's all I can think through it because there is this fascinating scene where this woman knows that the chain gang is going to be working near her house. So she comes out and washes her car in that like hilarious 80s commercial way of getting herself wet with the water and rubbing against the car and they're all like watching her with their jaws on the ground of course luke is the only one who's like you realize she's putting on a show right this isn't just like a thing that she does there's a part of that scene too where the prisoners are like she doesn't know what she's doing she doesn't know what she's doing she knows exactly what she's doing and i was like is this that part in the Sandlot where they say that exact same thing a reference? To this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen the Sandlot in a really long time. <laughs> I'm not sure. I have to. Re- I haven't rewatched it in a long time either. But I think when they That's see funny. Wendy Peppercorn, they say she doesn't know what she's doing. That's she probably know what she's a reference doing. to this. She knows yeah. exactly what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the religion Christ stuff is of particular interest to me. No, personally. but for me, I just sort of am like, ah, eh, take it or leave it. Like, I yeah. know that that's the themes he's going for, but for me, that's not what I'm here for. So there's the guy who runs the prison who says the famous line, "What we've got here is a failure, failure to, to communicate. communicate." And then there's like an enforcer guy who wears these aviators and is silent. He's mm-hmm. very interesting. I love him. That's another thing that's like some famous iconography that I'm like, did that come from this movie? Like the cop with those shiny shades. And it mm-hmm. made me think a lot about Guy in Oh Brother Where Art Thou who's chasing them. That's mm-hmm. very much the same sort of guy as this. And in the just people describing this character in this movie are like, he's like a walking Mephistopheles. And you're like, yeah, this is all very like, this is an iconic thing now, this cop with these shades. <laughs> and it's yeah. like a very specific thing that I really like. He's very interesting. Even though, yeah, he doesn't talk. <laughs> All right. I don't know. I don't have too many other thoughts. Any other thoughts about this? No, film? I love it. Never? And I think it's an interesting companion piece to I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Sure. I, I mean, I yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't think I've ever not liked a movie where people escape from a chain gang. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Anytime that pretty, happens, I'm having a good time. That's pretty fair. I can't think of an example that I don't like. So perhaps that's true. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd happily sub this in for Dr. Doolittle yep, in yep, the nominees. Yep. Absolutely. And I think you would be correct to do so. Okay, great. <laughs> so we have to talk about the good, the bad, the bad and the, the ugly. ugly. So this is a film that's set during the American Civil War, but it is not really about the American Civil War. It is about three guys who are... The good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. Who are searching for Confederate gold. So apparently this Confederate soldier has buried like $200,000 worth of gold somewhere. And there are three characters who are looking for it. The bad is Angel Eyes. We Mm -hmm. find out very late in the movie he's like a Union soldier, but he's also a mercenary who was working for this... Is he like really a Union soldier or did he just like roll up and say he was a Union soldier? That part was I mean, the general seems to know who he is and he's, I don't know. It's a little, whatever. He's at least posing as a Union soldier. And so he's working for this guy who's looking for the the guy who buried the the treasure who's going by Bill Carson these days. That's a pseudonym. And then he finds out about it and is like, well, I'm looking for the treasure now. And then there's Tuco, who's the ugly, who through a series of events also finds out about the treasure and starts to look for it. And then there's his companion Blondie, who is Clint Eastwood, who's kind of partnered with Tuco. So 
I guess I should say earlier on in the movie, Blondie and Tuco have this racket where Tuco gets arrested and he's about to be hanged and Blondie like shoots the rope. And then one time Blondie doesn't do it 100% correctly, sort of misses and Tuco gets a little hanged. And Just then they a have it lightly hanged. <laughs> lightly hanged. And then they have a tiff where Blondie leaves Tuco in the desert to die, but Tuco makes it. But I mean, he- it's all fun and games, really. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes after Blondie to kill him and then he drives him through the desert. And while he's driving him through the desert and he's about to die, they run into Bill Carson, who has been shot up. And so he's dying. And so Tuco finds out where the gold is broadly and then he runs off to get bill carson water and then when he comes back blondie's there and he blondie has found out from bill carson the name of the grave where it's buried so he can't let blondie die because they both have like you know a piece yeah, of the one of them map. knows which cemetery and one of them knows which grave yes and so then the movie becomes about him and blondie trying to get to this area they have a series of adventures getting there they end up getting captured by the union army and angel eyes is there He finds out from Tuco, again, like the location of the the gold, but he ends up being like, Blondie's not going to talk. So he takes Blondie with him. And so, yeah, all these three are jockeying to get this gold. In the end, they have this face off Blondie, who is the good, not because he's a good guy. He's just like an excellent shot. Well, and he's also supposed to sort of be like a satirical version of a white hot cowboy from these movies where they're the good one, but are they really that good? No, not really. And so they end up shooting Angel Eyes, the bad, and he and Tuco end up splitting the $200,000 worth of gold. In an extremely iconic scene of like a quote unquote Mexican standoff in the graveyard. So what did you think about this? There were parts I liked, but it was too fucking long. (laughs) is a a problem (laughs) I watched it in two sittings which I find often helps me when I'm watching very long movies but in this case the issue became I feel like the movie doesn't really start until like an hour and 15 minutes into the movie I wish we had just gotten to the we all are looking for the same treasure and we're on the road trying to get it part of the movie because that's when things sort of kick off I liked the second half of it way more than I liked the first half of it And I did really like Tuco. I heard that Clint Eastwood was worried that he was going to be outshined by Eli Wallach. And I think he was. (laughs) Oh, 100%. (laughs) Clint Eastwood is in this trilogy of Sergio Leone movies that this is the third of. And he was like, in the first one, it was just me. And in the next one, there were two. And now in this one, there are three. And blah, blah, blah. Like, he was all mad about it. And I was like, yeah, because you're not that interesting. (laughs) He's very taciturn, too. Whereas Tuco is a much bigger character. Yes. But I mean, there's like some pretty iconic shots in this. I do like how it is directed. Lots of close up music and far away shots. The music is the most iconic music. If you're watching anything with any bit of Western, you know, hint, you will hear this bit of I think it's supposed to sound like a wolf or a coyote. You've heard it. It's in everything. Any Morricone crushes it as always and yeah there's fun stuff that just was like it's there were long stretches where i was like i don't know if i need this part of the Mm. movie but yeah the standoff is cool there were lots of good things and also the serape iconic well yeah (laughs) i really like this movie yeah i was having a good time throughout it is three hours long but like 
Bonnie and Clyde took me forever to get through. I paused and I was like, oh my God, I'm 20 minutes into this movie. <laughs> and the first time I paused this movie, I was like an hour 20 in and I was like, okay, fine, good. I think the choice to like focus in on these three characters and their back and forth really worked for me. I think it's pretty funny throughout as well. Tuco is, is quite comedic Tuco's as funny. a character. I, like I thought the moments of tension really worked. Early on, Angel's Eyes goes to see this guy who knows what Bill Carson's new name is. And I thought that scene was excellent too, as he's like interrogating this guy. And this is one of these important revisionist Westerns where like I can actually see how it impacted cinema. Obviously Tarantino, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like you can see this all over Tarantino but there's also like really interesting echoes with between this in terms of even just plot points with no country for old mm-hmm. men that cropped up which I thought was interesting one thing I guess I'm not sure about with the movie is the civil war backdrop Same. I think it's an interesting time period to set the movie and the movie is again sort of like ambivalent about as it's going through it doesn't necessarily take a clear side because Sergio Leone's side is the whole thing is dumb there's no real good side and and in a sense you're like sure war is bad generally there are moments particularly early on when they're there are a lot of scenes in the first half when they're coming up against soldiers and it's always confederate soldiers that have been decimated by the north and so you're coming into these rooms of really injured soldiers and you're like yeah okay this is sad that they're all injured (laughs) but but, but, yeah but then like on the other side right he's has the guy who's running the camp that Tuco and Blondie get taken to is having a conversation with Angel Eyes and he's like as long as I'm alive and he's dying he's got like terrible gangrene in his leg he's like we will not torture people and Angel Eyes like you think that they treat our soldiers that well and he's like I don't care. This is not the way we do this. And I agree with you. Like, I think Leone's point is the futility of war. There's that scene where the people are just fighting each other on that, Mm -hmm. that bridge. Right. And it's just chaos. But at the same time, it's like, so it's more meaningful to just be like three vagabonds searching for gold. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I will say I loved the alcoholic union guy who was like, Mm -hmm. That was probably my favorite bit of the of the war stuff. So they come upon this camp of soldiers and there's a bridge across a river. So there are a bunch of Union people on one side and Confederate people on the other side. And nobody wants to lose the bridge because it's very useful for moving your people around. So they have all just been here for months, every day, having a skirmish over this bridge. It's very World, World War One, <laughs> And so everyone's super fucked up about it. Because, you know, they're all dying for seemingly no reason to protect this bridge. And the guy who's in charge of the Union soldiers is, is like, not coping well. He's an alcoholic and he's really upset about losing all these men all the time. And he tells them when they meet him, he has this fantasy of blowing up the bridge. Because they've been told that they have to, like, protect the bridge. We need the bridge. It's important. And he's mm-hmm. like, if I blow up the bridge, we'll all just leave and stop fighting over this and thousands of lives will be saved but i'm too much of a coward to actually do it so then the guys not really out of any sense of altruism but the idea that they need all of these people to go away so that they can escape blow up the bridge for him and there is this kind of sweet moment where he's been mortally wounded in the battle and then they come to him and they're like keep your ears open you might (laughs) hear something and he like stays alive long enough to hear them blow up the bridge and then can finally die peacefully Mm -hmm. he i loved that guy that was really good yeah it was good. And then I will say also one of my favorite part pieces of comedy in this film is so after 
Tuco and Blondie have come across Bill Carson, they dress up as Confederate soldiers, and particularly Tuco dresses up as Bill Carson, or I was like, babe, that's a mistake. You shouldn't. He doesn't know, though. He doesn't know that somebody is out for Bill Carson. No, he doesn't know that, yeah, that Angel Eyes is after him. But they're going along, and they see some soldiers approaching, and they look gray in the distance. They're like, yay, Robert E. Lee, he's so fantastic. We love the Dixie. And then the soldiers arrive, and they're Union soldiers who are just covered in dust. (laughs) Awkward. And I was like, this is pretty yeah. great. I also loved Tuco take his like bubble bath. And one of the guys mm-hmm. who's been hunting for him comes upon him and he starts, he thinks he's found him in the bath. And so he's pointing a gun at him and he starts to like monologue in the way that people do. And yeah. then Tuco just shoots him because he has this gun hiding under the bubbles. And it's like, you know, if you want to shoot somebody, you should shoot them. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk. All of the character introductions mm-hmm. were so great. So they start off and then text will come up on screen. I loved Tuco's character introduction where you see three guys and they're coming into town and they're, they're looking for someone. And then Tuco just jumps through a window and he has like a huge turkey leg in his hand. <laughs> and the text just comes up that says the ugly. And they have this super Tarantino. Yeah, there's lots, lots, lots of Tarantino influence here. But the it's a fun fake out at the beginning because that's the opening scene and you're meeting what you th- what they mm-hmm. are sort of portraying as the main characters of the movie. So it's these like intense close-ups on these guys and they're about to maybe have some sort of battle and they're like across the town looking at each other. And then finally they get up close to each other and it turns out they're together. And then they all go into this building and then immediately they're all dead. <laughs> yeah. I had a good time. I was surprised. I was like three hours. This yeah. is going to be rough, but I was pretty interesting. I liked the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then there was... 45 minutes to an hour that I didn't need. <laughs> then I liked the last right. two hours of it. Yeah. I think I enjoyed Tuco and Blondie fucking with each other more than you. I did. mean, I did think that their scheme was a good one. I liked the idea of befriending somebody who has money on their head and then going from town to town and collecting ransom. It's a, it's great, a great scheme. scheme. <laughs> and there's good payoff. I mean, it's not that I want to lose all of it. It's that I'd like... I would have gotten it in a shorter amount of time. Cause I do really like the payoff mm-hmm. at the end when he le- you th- leaves Tuco with a noose around his neck about to be, you know, be hung. And then you think like he's driving away, leaving him to his death. And then of course he stops and shoots the rope so that he is free again. Like it's great payoff. Yeah. And I did also, I love the end bit where the, the, the titles come up again, so he shoots him into the good, and then Tuco the ugly, and then the bad is just leave and cleave in that grave that he's fallen into. <laughs> oh, leave and cleave. Yeah, I'm glad I've watched it. I just probably won't be rewatching it. Sergio Leone, a spaghetti western. Our first spaghetti western. Oh, another interesting thing about it like everyone performed in their native language, so there are lots of non English speakers, and then there's very weird, like, lip sinking issues to a lot oh, yeah. there's <laughs> there's dubbing problems but that's a spaghetti yes. western for you that's just what's gonna yes, happen yes, yes. there's nothing to be done about that <laughs> okay last lastly barefoot in the park yeah this is one um i don't necessarily think this should have been nominated for best picture i just saw that it came out this year and i think it's fun it's a little neil simon romantic comedy play that was adapted into a feature with finally robert redford <laughs> <laughs> yes robert redford is in this one he originated that role on broadway yeah. it's just sort of snappy dialogue about a newly married young couple and them trying to start their lives together and how to make a relationship work when they don't really know what they're doing so it starts with their 
honeymoon and then they move into a new place and then it's just sort of a series of silly events they have this neighbor they go out to dinner with him she tries to set him up with her mother he's this freewheeling kind of like the most interesting man in the world type and her mother is very uptight new jersey mom and so there's disagreement because it's kind of like a a dharma and greg kind of relationship (laughs) she is supposed to be sort of more free-spirited and he is a lawyer and kind of uptight and it's just about making their philosophies work together and the barefoot in the park is a big part of their main fight with each other is that he wouldn't walk barefoot in the park with her when she wanted to and he was like it was fucking freezing out she's like who cares it's fun (laughs) and so then the final scene of it is him barefoot in the park and drunk because they have broken up and he's not handling it well and so then they get back together and I just think there's fun dialogue. There are certainly parts of it that have not aged super well. Yeah, I tried to watch it. I did not finish it. I found Jane Fonda's character too annoying, but I was excited to see Charles Boyer again. Yeah, Charles Boyer is the neighbor. (laughs) He's fun. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, love to get another Charles Boyer in my life. But no, I, I, I couldn't finish the movie. Yeah, I could see that. It's not for everyone. But I think she's fun and they're both cute. All right. Okay, so best of lists, AFI. There are three movies from this year on the AFI list. We have The Graduate in 17th place, In the Heat of the Night in 42nd, and Bonnie and Clyde in 75th. So they managed to nominate them all. Good, Good job. job. But this list, at the very least, seems to sort of agree with the consensus that maybe The Graduate is the best of these films. Mm-hmm. So after all of that, what should have won? I mean, I'm fine with In the Heat of the Night winning. If it had been the case that the graduated one, I'd also be fine with that. So, yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with this year. Yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, if we're both in a place where we're not mad about it, then like, sure, fine. The Oscars got it right. I prefer the graduate. I think I also probably prefer Cool Hand Luke, but that's not even a choice. So sure. In the Heat of the Night. Why not? Yeah, I think... Again, like I said, I think when I started The Graduate, I was like, how did this not win? But there's that second half where I think, for me, In the Heat of the Night is pretty strong through its whole runtime. So we're saying, no, the Oscars did not get it wrong. Chop one up to Oscar. A rare win for Oscar. But they should have nominated Sidney Poitier. That was very wrong. Absolutely. Idiots. And also, they should not have nominated Dr. Doolittle. Yes, also that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Shall we? Take a stroll down to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Let's do it. Now, unsurprisingly, he was not alive this year, but that doesn't mean we can't dream about it. So if he had been acting this year, are there any roles in any of these films that would make sense for him? I mean, the obvious choice is The Graduate, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I have not seen as many of these, but you have told me there was like a period early in his career where he just played young men who kind of tangoed with older women. He has women. multiple movies where he's like either a late teenager or a early 20s and has like a romance with a much older woman. So he would fit right in. <laughs> so there. That aside, is there anything else you would maybe want to see him in that would not be perhaps so obvious? I mean, there are lots of roles that he could have been interesting in. Like, he could be Clyde. He could be Luke. He could be... Dr. Dr. Doolittle. We do keep asking for him in a musical, to be fair. (laughs) And if he brought the unhinged energy of that character he played in the John Mulaney special, 
that could have been interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Him singing yeah. to that seal. Oh my god, can you imagine him singing to that seal? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know who the thing is like I don't know who I want to take out of a movie to replace him with. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to lose Dustin Hoffman in The right. Graduate. I mean, I didn't love Warren Beatty and Bonnie and Clyde, but I also didn't really like that movie, so I don't necessarily want Jake sure. to be in it. I don't know. Maybe he's not in any of these movies. Lame. He's in an alternate universe where he is alive, The Graduate. because Where he's alive and Dustin Hoffman is not. And then we don't have to feel weird about yes. taking Dustin Hoffman out. Exactly, Mundo. Yeah, he could definitely do that. Yeah, there was a long period at the beginning of his career where he's very young and angsty and all of his things. Okay. So in conclusion, do we see ourselves coming back to any of these movies? Sure, sure, sure. Sure, 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 sure. Sure, sure, sure. I'd watch The Graduate yep. again. I mean, this was the second time I'd seen In the Heat of the Night. I'd watch it again. I'd watch Cressy's Coming to Dinner again. Yep. Honestly, I'd probably watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly again. Maybe not fully sitting down, but I'd put it on in the yeah. background as I'm cleaning. Great. I would rewatch The Graduate, I guess, just coming to dinner, and Cool Hand Luke. There's some good stuff this year, I think. Mm, for sure, for sure, for sure. For sure. Did we learn anything about the Academy and what the hell they're up to? We learned that, well, I think, you know, we knew this. We know the Academy voters... Don't always watch all the movies. We know the Academy voters are buyable. (laughs) (laughs) They do try to have rules about what you're allowed to do to sway voters, but they're not particularly effective. Yeah. So. Yep. That's that. that. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of one of my takeaways from reading Mm -hmm. these books was these like great new Hollywood movies all happen to be very white and often focused on white men who have problems like ennui and yep. impotence and just being so sad. It's so hard to be a white man. White men, why are they so sad? It's been like the biggest problem facing our society for the last as many decades as I can remember. White men always have it so hard. Yeah, there was another quote from this Pictures at a Revolution book where they said, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate were allied as indictments of the status quo. And it's like more than the movies with black people (laughs) (laughs) apparently okay Okay. (laughs) all right it's just very interesting that things become art when they're about white men how's that always so strange i don't know so i feel like we didn't necessarily learn that much because those are all things that we kind of have thought before but even more so (laughs) (laughs) and they make stupid fucking decisions like not nominating Sidney poitier for very important performances so big woof Woof. let's check in with our patterns angry white guys it's like more sad white guys there's so many sad white guys oh my god (laughs) everyone is so sad (laughs) yeah i mean there's not really like a travis bickle here no just sad white sad white guys and racists you know so then what about biopics not a one. We're not counting Bonnie and Clyde. It doesn't start early enough. Dr. Doolittle, shockingly, no. I wish there was a real man who could talk to the animals. <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> and then all of these other ones are fictional. Original ideas? There are two. Dr. Doolittle 
is based on children's books, The Graduate on a novella and In the Heat on a novel. But Bonnie and Clyde are mm-hmm. guess who's coming to dinner? Our original. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts before we go? I don't think so. Some interesting stuff going on this year and more very strange race conversation in American, you know, culture. Why couldn't Guess Who's Coming to Dinner be as progressive as The Graduate? This is the real question. We can't answer. (laughs) Okay. So what are we talking about next time? The 10th Academy Awards, which is the films of 1937. What are they? The nominees were The Awful Truth. Captains, Courageous, Dead End, The Good Earth, In Old Chicago, The Life of Emile Zola, Lost Horizon, A Hundred Men and a Girl, Stage Door, and the original A Star is Born. Oh my gosh! We're adding one to our set. Have you seen any of these movies? Nope. Me neither. We did. I don't know if we want to spoil this. We did a little bit of research about the reviews on these movies, though. We could be in for a good time. Mm -hmm. The Rotten Tomato scores are pretty uniformly very yeah. high. And honestly, we've had a pretty good time in the 30s. Too we late. have. Other than our nemesis. Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Yeah. But yeah, was one that, movie out of 10. In other than that, we've watched a lot of really good movies from the 30s. So could be good. We'll find out. Could be good. In the meantime. Reach out to us with comments, questions, and concerns at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Check out our website, OscarsWrongPod.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 